which is huge. I mean, it's like a man. It, it's big. Kane, son. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study. Not to bring back. But to wipe them out. That's the plan. You have my word on it. All right, I'm in. Let's rock! Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick Green, Maj, and Perry. Welcome to the show, everyone. And tonight, today, we are here to discuss a really iconic component to the Alien series, which was found in Alien, the space jockey, which is much lauded and talked about within fandom. It's a very controversial subject, but it's something that we felt naturally fit well with our discussion in terms of Lovecraft and cosmic horror, but kind of veering off from that a little bit. Yeah, this is a topic that we have been requested to talk about a lot before, and we've been kind of waiting for the right moment to do it because it like does it kind of get its own episode? Do we put it in somewhere else? And because the jockey came up quite a bit in our previous two episodes that were more explicitly about Lovecraft and Lovecraft's connection to Alien, it kind of felt like the right time. From a personal perspective, the reason why I had suggested this being the moment to do it is because a, a number of people have reached out to me after that episode and said, you know what, I feel like the space jockey is the thing we all can agree on. Like it is just the bedrock of that feeling that you get when you watch Alien. It's right at the center of the mystery. It's like the gateway to the cosmos that we get. And, um, and it's something that we kind of don't talk about very much. I have some ideas why, and we're going to get to some of those ideas tonight, but just to kind of bring up at the front at the front of this conversation, I think one of those ideas is because the jockey became so controversialized in the wake of the prequels coming out, when we had Ridley Scott saying that it was an engineer and it was doing this and for this reason, and for completely valid reasons, because he's the director and he can do what he wants, but he basically took away from us, and I say that as somebody who on the whole likes the prequels, but especially Covenant took away from us some of the mystery that we had all lived with. And I think that is something that we kind of can't, you know, uh, it's okay to kind of slight him for that somewhat. So tonight we're going to talk about the jockey. We're going to talk about how it came to be. We're going to talk about why it looks the way it looks. And we're going to talk about how it's shown up in a bunch of different places in the intervening decades. And, uh, and maybe share some of our personal reflections on the nature of the beast itself and kind of how we envision it. I guess kind of to get into this conversation, does anybody remember the first time they saw the derelict sequence? Uh, that's one of my first memories is uh, of Alien, because I had seen Alien second, but I didn't see Alien until a couple years later after seeing Aliens. And I remember when they went into that jockey ship and they, or the derelict, and then they went into the jockey chamber. And I remember being terrified of that thing, terrified, because it's this monolith exoskeleton you're not really sure was it something is it something was it a robot what was it is it part of the, like you just don't know what you're looking at and 
the, the silence around it, the way that they shot it. So it feels like it's, you feel like you're watching, walking into a temple and the way that the camera works, you feel like you're one of the, the members of the, the Nostromo kind of coming up from underneath to see it. It was just terrifying. It sat with me and sat with me and still does to this day. It was, and I don't know what year that was, but I would say it wasn't until maybe 90 that I saw that. VHS? Of course. So pan and scan. Um, no, I would always rent the widescreen from Blockbuster. Mm. I, I just always did. I hated the pan and scan. I was a purist from a young age. As we all should be. I don't remember the exact moment watching it. I do remember the feeling later of wondering what the hell it was. And I feel lucky that that I got to experience it as something, you know, without the reputation attached. And I got to kind of have that pure experience of not knowing what it was or someone telling me, oh, there's a great scene coming up. Um, it's nice when you get to have that moment in life. I think we all have them sometimes, whether it be an album or a movie or just a scene from a movie or whatever the case. But I do remember asking one of my best friends and he knew, he knew the name of it and he said, it's called the space jockey. And I was like, but what is it? And that was it. That's cool, man. Wow. I, uh, I would have to agree. I, I don't truly remember the, like the first time ever seeing it just because I was young and I wasn't, uh, didn't have the mind uh, frame at the time to like remember like these images that I'm seeing from this movie that I end up loving, um, you know, 20 years later. Uh, but I do remember like this, the feelings I had after seeing it. Um, specifically just like probably one of the first movies I watched that hinted at just how grandiose the universe is and what is what is out there and the mystery behind that you know Patrick to your point a little bit of like the mystery that Ridley Scott built through those cinematic images of just like what is this thing and why is it so dark and horrific and quiet in this place and how long has this thing been there and why do they want to like explore the ship more that was always that was always a feeling i always had as as it, i was just like why don't they i was on lambert's side i was like let's get the hell out of here man But yeah, I was I was always very intrigued by it just because I, w I was always fascinated by space and the universe as a child. And um, to be watching a film that I think put some really great ideas out there uh, to just ponder and think about for for years, for so many years. Um, but it was just really fucking cool. <laughs> Yeah, I, I remember the my impressions of the first time I saw this movie, which were formed when I was seven, so it, it is definitely a long time ago, were that that was the scariest part for me. That was the thing that I was like so scared by. Part of it is because I was convinced it was still alive 
And I think that's just such a tribute to Giger's sculptural work. Like I felt like there was going to be a jump scare or something. And then when I realized there wasn't going to be a jump scare, I was really intrigued by that because I was still more scared actually after that because I, it was dead. And how long was it there for? And why are there no other ones, right? And you start having all of these questions. And then just as you realize how intrigued you are the light goes off its face and you just have that amazing shot where it's backlit and you just see kind of the outline mm -hmm. of its cheek and like that the cinematography there like jamie was alluding to the way that's framed the way that the whole chamber is shot and the way that goldsmith's score articulates those beats narratively it's like it is just the most beautiful cinematic expression of cosmic horror that i have ever seen in my life I love this idea, you know, because it's, it's again, it's hard to get back in the headspace of where we were the first time we saw it. But before we see that there is a derelict, before we know that there's a planetoid that's got a beacon coming off of it, before we know any of that, we think we're watching Star Wars, right? We're like watching boring Star Wars. <laughs> like we're watching Star Wars, but like the people that are just tugging things back and forth, right? And I say boring in quotes because obviously it's not boring, but in terms of there's no like, you know, battles going on. A little on. more storage wars than Star Wars, maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then we get this gradual pulling back of what you see isn't what you think you're seeing and there's things below the surface and what i love about the design of both the jockey and the creature itself and this is a tribute to hr giger obviously is that both of them are many things at the same time when i look at the jockey it is both mechanical and biological it is both human and completely inhuman it is both living and clearly petrified and dead. It is its face is either a rictus of pain or it's got a helmet or I can't even tell what expression it has, but it's emoting something visceral at me. And that's like the that's the impression that I get still to this day when I watch that sequence is like what horror led to that moment and why is that moment calling us towards it, which I find so fucking scary to this day. Um kind of getting back around to it to give a little bit of the history of where this idea came from the in bannon o'bannon's original story and script the jockey was already present it wasn't called that obviously uh but it was a member of an alien race and it was where this beacon was originating from and originally there were multiple sets right so like so they would find this this dead uh you know humanoid creature and then they would go to this pyramid this huge building and in that huge building they would find the eggs etc uh, so it would have been even more expensive. And that's why when Geiler and Hill came in, they said, actually, let's kind of like cut a lot of that. Let's make it more streamlined. It's actually a human. This is part of the company. It's like a company scheme to get them there. So we're just going to have it be humans. And that's where this whole jockey concept came in, that there was like a bureaucrat, like somebody that was just sort of behind the controls, uh, who was a person who had been chest bursted. And uh, what I love, though, is that then like Scott and uh, others pushed back and said, no, 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 no. We're keeping this as being alien. Like this is part of another storyline that we're only seeing some valent surface from. So we're keeping it, but we will compromise a little bit and we will cut the pyramid stuff and we'll kind of put it all in one thing. So it's all in a ship together. And, uh, but this is an alien creature, right? 
So then the next phase, of course, was the design because like we, you know, we have this incredible xenomorphic entity. We have all these great things. Like what's this thing going to look like? And you're talking, of course, to like one of the great design teams ever assembled for a motion picture with people like Ron Cobb and Chris Foss and fucking Mobius, you know, all three of whom submitted designs for this thing, including Mobius, which is so cool. And you look at them now and like they're they're interesting, but they're not they don't like they don't hit it, you know, like they, they just look like cool alien creatures. And uh, so Scott wasn't impressed with any of them. And he turned it over to Giger, who of course, went back to his Necronom series and found this picture of this skeletal creature encased in a chair with something sticking into its mouth, which to be fair is what most of his artwork is. <laughs> it's things with things in their mouth sitting in chairs. Uh, but it was very, very scary. And they used that as the basis. And Giger's design process was really quick. He iterated from that to the final thing super quickly, sculpted it in clay, and they shot it for $500,000 and the rest is cinema history. But what I love is when Giger talks about how he put that design together, he talked about the things that I was just bringing up, which was he really wanted it to be totally unclear if it was like living or dead, biological or mechanical. He wanted it to be basically that its function was also its form. So it was it, what it had to do was sit in a chair and pilot this thing. And its form, therefore, was a chair that piloted a ship and you put them together. And you get this entity that is so confusing and so unsettling and so uh, beautiful as well. I also love the scale of it, right? In, in context, like the fact that you kind of think it's like human sized. And then as they get closer to it, you're like, holy shit, that is way bigger. And uh, and so, yeah, I'm just kind of throwing all that out there. But that's kind of the idea of where it came from. I did not know that there at any point there was going to be a, a human being in there. Uh, like from the company that's a very interesting idea well what's interesting about the jockey as well is i remember distinctly my feelings when i saw it for the first time and so when they pull away from it it's just like you described this long like the lights leaving it but the last thing that you see are the eyes kind of glowing and i remember thinking it was sad i remember feeling like sad for it but not knowing really what i mean i guess those were its, its eyes i'm not really sure but then of course the other huge question that I had was, where is the thing that was inside of it? Where is it? Now they're in this derelict. And so in my mind, whatever was inside it is in that ship. So are they safe? Um, so that's what the jockey kind of was representing, that this danger from within, literally from within, and then this poor creature thing, whatever it was, just there. And what's so brilliant about the jockey scene and all of the derelict stuff is that, and it's one thing that I love about, for instance, Lord of the Rings films or Game of Thrones or House of the Dragon, it feels like human history. It's done so well, it feels like it's real. And they filmed that sequence and it was edited and scored and acted so perfectly that it felt like this is what it's going to be like when we find an alien species on another planet or the remnants of an, this is what it's going to be like. It's going to be quiet. And it also echoed a lot of um, 2001, a space odyssey when they walk up to the monolith mm, and you don't, I mean, yeah. Yeah. And you kind of know what you're looking at, but you have no idea what you're looking at. It's a monolith, but is this thing alive? What is this thing? And, but it's also terrifying. And it's so funny to that this, long black monolith thing could be terrifying but it was and the space jockey is very similar we don't know really what we're looking at and it's terrifying 
And it's t- terrifying in two levels because one, we think it's dead, but we don't know. But also, where's the thing that was inside it? So you have all of that happening, haunting that space. It's profound. I agree. You hit on something, Patrick, about how we get a whole tension and release inside of the scene where it is scary, mainly through this very uh, um, this shot that Jamie's talking about where the camera's pulling back and you're just straining to see more. And the more it shows you, instead of it answering your questions, it just confuses you further. And then I agree, the music softens and it calms down and then they just start talking about it and and you're with them again and you're not so scared, but you are just filled with with questions. And then it has this thing where it goes from being very scary to almost kind of wise and majestic looking. And it, uh, it, it is very powerful to me. One underrated thing about this scene is the room that they're in because to be in front of that giant thing and to be inside of this room that they just entered. I mean, of course the, the hallway they were in when they first go inside the ship is somewhat similar, but like, for them to to walk down this hallway and then Kane has to kind of lift himself up, uh, pull himself up onto this platform. And then these these walls behind them, it's such like a vision of hell to me. It's just like there's something about like there's those moments in life where you kind of I don't know if it's dissociating or whatever, but when you're kind of like. Oh right, yeah, I'm at work, like I'm I'm at my desk or like whatever the case where you just kind of be where you reacquaint yourself with like the current moment you're in. If you if you had that moment in that room, I feel like you your mind would implode. Like it's the scariest room ever. It's just so horrific. And it's it it's uh it reminds me of one of the scarier concept images that Giger came up with for the space jockey and it's very it it's actually very um uh almost thinking like a camera, this picture he drew where everything's kind of exaggerated, almost like it's a fisheye lens and you see the jockey from the back and it's aiming straight up and there's all this light pouring in from the top. And uh, that that scene, who knows, I, I should have looked it up before we, I should have rewatched it and, and timed it and everything and counted everything out. But the scene's got to be like less than four minutes long. It's got to be comprised of probably 10 or so shots, like not that many. It, there's there's you know he just found the right angles and just communicated this and it is one of those great things where you see the when you see the behind the scenes of the set and how they just shot it to the very edges they just used that whole set this this just this wall and that of course Cameron would do um in the next movie to uh to great effect but um but yeah do you guys ever stop and think about the room <laughs> at all i was going to say Maj, i uh I know exactly what you're talking about in that feeling too. I've, I've, I've had a very similar experience in life uh, where I was like on vacation once um, down in Mexico uh, on this. um, And there was like this little beach and they had uh, like maybe a hundred, 200 feet out in the water. There was like this rock wall. And on the other side, there was like a, smaller version of like Christ the Redeemer statue that had sunken in the water and they had someone had like um tied a rope to the head of it and there was like a, a like a milk jug that floats <clears throat> on the water so if you want you can swim out there and dive down with like a snorkel set on and see the statue wow. um 
so I was like, oh, cool. I want to do that. So I, so, so like me and a couple of friends, like we went out there and swam out there. Uh, what I didn't know is when you get to the milk jug and you like grab the rope, the water is actually like kind of murky enough. So you can't like see the statue right beneath you, but you know that it's down there. So I was like, oh, I'm going to dive down. So I dive down and like, I'm grabbing this rope and I get down to like just the head of this thing. And the water is clear. Like when you finally get to it, you can see the entire statue. And it was so fucking scary to me. I this was, is my nightmare. What you're describing. By yeah, the way. My, my sub mechanophobia is like banging super hard right now. It, it was, uh, oh my God. you guys, it, it was, um, it, I mean, it was terrifying for a moment. I was like, oh my God. And it, it's just crazy, right? Like when you go swim in the ocean or like you go swim in the lake, you're, you're not really thinking about like how huge this basin of water is that you're swimming in and like what else could be down here with me, right? And that is the exact feeling I had at that moment that I like, I was like, oh, this is cool. And I turned around and like swam straight back up and I was like, all right, I'm good. I'm like, Soon enough. Yeah, yeah, good enough for me. So I, uh, but that feeling is so close just now that I think about it, just so closely relatable to seeing that, watching that in Alien um, about that room and about the the space jockey in there and just like how how big it was when Dallas like climbs up there and looks at it. And uh, and yeah, I agree. Just just that moment when they're like they, they leave it. And the in the in the camera and the lights on it for a second, and then it kind of pans away. Jamie, kind of to what you were saying, like it looked sad, like that feeling of like what, what are they just glancing over here? What's what's being sort of like the tip of the iceberg that that's being shown to us here? Because I was like, what is going to come back and and seriously harm them, or like what horror lies beneath this? you know this fossil of a thing in this huge room and is it going to be deadly for them is it is it gonna answer some huge question that we've been everyone's been wondering about the galaxy the universe is it you know so many different things uh i feel very seen and validated right now by your fear of the thing in the water because like something about large inert objects i guess it doesn't happen on land but i'm not even kidding the whole sub mechanophobia thing i i sometimes when you when you read about very specific phobias like that you're like well how many people can really feel this way that it deserves a name but like I specifically had a fear of submarines, not going underwater, not boats, but like just the the object of a submarine in the water freaked me out from like a very young age. And then and now I get to go online and just uh, trigger myself and look at those pictures and and YouTube. There's something about it. It's just like I'm dying for that feeling of being horrified and just feeling tiny. And and the space jockeys like that. It's inert. It's this giant. It is monolithic. It is a monolith. Uh, like Jamie was saying, the idea of something that's been there for a long time that will continue to be there for a long time when you're gone scares me. And I think that speaking to what you're both getting at with the jockey, to me, the the, the amazing moment in that moment, the moment that is like transcendent, even in a, in a series of transcendent moments, is that final shot where you see the light on his face and then it leaves and you're filled with this awareness that it's going to be there for forever, right? That like the, we we caught one glimpse of it, but like it it will still be there until you know apparently time stops or something because it's not going anywhere. It's not eroding at all. 
And I think um, part of why that functions so well as a device for fear in Alien and for those characters in particular is that we're introduced to these characters in the context of something that is just Earth, but floating around, right? Like their environment on the Nostromo is like any, you know, working class workstation in, in the world. Like they're, they're doing their job. They got their cereal They're They're basically, it's like they're on earth. They're just, things are a little smaller and they're doing it in space. And you get the sense that they do that intentionally because it makes them comfortable, right? Like it, it's, it's what they know. It helps to distract from the idea that on the other side of that bulkhead is the infinite vastness of, you know, the cosmos, which would be paralyzingly terrifying for anybody to get fixated on. I mean, you see this all the time with, uh, for example, people that work at the ISS, right? They have all these windows that you're supposed to spend a certain amount of time at every day that face the earth so that you can still feel your tether to it and you don't start getting kind of, you know, weird uh, or feeling disconnected. And so what I love about the jockey is it is the first concrete disruption of that for the crew, right? Like as they're flying around space, they know that there's planetoids and moons and planets and body celestial bodies and things out there. So it's not like when they touch down, they're, you know, it's it's chaos to them. Like they, they've they've been on the surface of other planets. They have a lander, you know, like they know they know they have a landing protocol, they know what they're doing. They see the derelict, and that's the first sign that something's different because it looks clearly like it's not human. But who knows? Maybe it could have been some experimental prototype that, you know, Wayland had out there at some point and wasn't accounted for. And like, maybe that's what's going on. But they get to the jockey, and that is the first time where they're like, that is not us. Like, that, that is not a Wayland employee. This is not a ship that we were supposed to know about. What else is out there? And then when that light goes off on the face of the jockey, you carry with you the sense that it's like you've lost your, you know, cosmic virginity because it's like there's there's no going back. Like you can't unknow this now. There's you can't unsee the jockey. And that fear like pervades the whole rest of the movie for me, because even then when they're back on the ship, like, I mean, you know what it's like, but as, as soon as they're back on the ship and they're arguing about opening the, the door and, you know, Ash and Ripley have their back and forth, like th that ship is never earth again. It is never home again. It is never comforting again. The entire rest of the movie, that ship is completely fucking alien. And not just because there's an alien on it, but because all of a sudden, all of those angles that we saw are frightening, you know, like in the beginning of the movie, when we're kind of going in the corridors, and we're going to the cockpit and things. It's it's haunting, but not in a frightening way. It's haunting more in a like it's so quiet and kind of peaceful. It's like the ruins of something. And it's then definitely ominous, up, though. There's an ominousness to it, but it's not like it. It's not overwhelming. It's just you know, it's it's just it's why is it so quiet? Like quietly ominous. Yeah. yeah, 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 right. Like it's foreboding, but that that becomes overtly threatening like the rest of the movie the ship is so fucking scary and it's be, it's because we know now what's on the other side of that bulkhead and the bulkhead is open and it's inside with us so i think that's part of why the jockey works so well too thank you for picking that up because you literally said the thing that i forgot but way better than i would have said it which is just that that scene is obviously uh monumental on its own but it's it only really has the punch because of the previous half hour because of where we've been and how we've been grounded in this story. And then to, to, to just arrive at that moment. And then for the score to really kind of like break open and do this thing that feels very contemporary to me. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I need to do more homework on scores of the seventies. If they were using tape delay or these weird sort of plucky uh, creepy crawly things, but like, 
Uh, is that a standout moment for you, Patrick, as far as the score? Oh, yeah. We, we actually went into that pretty deep on the Goldsmith episode, which was probably three or four years ago. But um, mm. yeah, the, the the instrumentation there is is really avant-garde. Scores in the 70s were avant-garde in general, and that was also the birth of like the synth as a scoring technique, really, and think that was taken seriously and things. But Goldsmith, what, what he did that was so great is he used all of these non-traditional instruments in non-traditional ways. So what we heard for the most part was still just people playing instruments, but they were playing instruments that sounded completely different from any way that we've ever heard them played before. And it also features the serpentine, which is a really kind of out there avant-garde instrument as well in that sequence. So when we're hearing the like the tape delay, like you're talking about, et cetera, and it's doing the stereo panning and stuff like that, it is genuinely avant-garde film scoring. And from a composer that I think unfairly often gets put in this category of like, oh, he's sort of old Hollywood, like he pumps him out, you know, he did the Rudy soundtrack, but there's actually like a lot of depth to his music. And that's a really good window into it. Thank you for bringing it up. I have another question on that, and I'm, I, I don't, I hate to quiz you, but I know that the score was kind of uh, chopped up and rearranged, not the way Goldsmith had spotted the film originally. Like, do you know if that part was always intended for that reveal? That's a really good question, and I don't know for a fact, but I'm Listeners. assuming it is because on well, on subsequent issues where of reissues of the soundtrack where he's had input, it, it's been labeled as like the derelict sequence. So I'm, I'm uh, assuming it probably was. All right. Do you have you guys ever been to the Grand Canyon? Yeah. Have all of you been? I have not. I've okay. Not ex- not exclusively. What does that what, mean? What the well, hell does that mean? What do you, what I don't know. Do you, like, I mean, like, we're in an open relationship with the Grand Canyon. I've, we've had our moments. <laughs> Brandy, you can't do this to me. <laughs> so I've been to the Grand Canyon, and I know that some of you have been. And when I went there, I went, uh, first of all, just to explore. I'd never been before. You know, you'd always seen the Grand Canyon growing up in photos, you know, in school. You'll see photos of the Grand Canyon and people talk about it. And then when you get there, it's it's way more than you can ever comprehend. Like your your eyes can't even comprehend. Your brain can't even process the information that it's seeing. It's very, very interesting. But a lot of it feels like the planet of LV-426. It's just vast and foreboding but it's all bathed in light so it's a different kind of foreboding but it feels like space almost where it feels like you're looking into oblivion the oblivion of humankind primordial man it's what it feels like and that, that's kind of scary too but with specific uh experience that i had when i was at the grand canyon was going to these native american ruins that are on the sides of cliffs one of the ruins that i went to was there was a tour and you could go and there were kind of lights in there very very intriguing um ominous a little bit but it was so touristy that it kind of it just wasn't 
it wasn't much. It was like, okay, this is interesting. I, I went to some ruins. So we're drive. So we're leaving the Grand Canyon and we park because we park the car or the the um the RV that we're driving and we all get out. And I was just with a bunch of guy friends. This is back in uh, the early aughts. And we get off and we start kind of jumping, not jumping, but like climbing down. I don't know how you how you'd even like rock faces that were like steps, big, huge, but like gigantic, you know, boulder steps. And then as we were hiking, we saw another ruin on the side of a mountain, but this one was not for tourists. And we're like, we're going to get to this. But it reminded me of the space jockey in the room because it was just there. Like something was alive there. Like, could people be living there? And it scared me. It scared me because there it is in the middle of nowhere. I'm sure, obviously, that park rangers and archaeologists, everyone knows that it's there. It's, it's out in the open, but it's in the middle of essentially nowhere. And it reminded me, I remember going to it. It reminded me of the space jockey. We never could reach it. We were kind of hopping down and climbing as close as we could get to it, but we couldn't really get to it. It was just, it was like a few steps beyond our own safety, but it scared me. It scared me the way the space jockey room scared me. It scared me the way the space jockey itself scared me because you don't know what you're looking at. And they're not like TPs or very um, palatable native American history that we're used to uh, that we read in our history books and our very whitewashed history books growing up as kids. This was a different type of experience. And I'm bringing all this up because Again, to an earlier point that I made, Ridley Scott and, and Giger and the artists involved in bringing the, the jockey ship, the derelict, and the jockey himself to life really echoed that sense that something was here. We don't know what, because also the the Anastasi ruins, they there's not really an account of why they disbanded and left. No one knows why. There's a civilization that just disappeared, much like uh, I think Jamestown. There's just real no. There's no real record of like what happened. Where did these people go? No one knows, and that not knowing is terrifying. And not knowing is like oblivion, which Patrick has brought up before, where you you go into this space and you don't know what you're looking at, and you don't know. And when your brain can't make sense of something, it turns to fear. And again, it just, I, I can't go on enough about how perfectly those scenes, I mean, the entire film, but those mm -hmm. scenes in the derelict were like, I, it was just perfect and terrifying. We're going to take a break and be right back. We all remember that moment. The first time we heard a theme from our favorite movie, how it stayed with us comforted us, stirring our imagination. Sublime Noise is our Patreon-exclusive film score review show. Starting at just $4 a month, you will gain access to Sublime Noise, as well as our Warehouse of Framerate episodes, where we discuss and review our favorite films. To sign up, go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. As I picture it, you painted that so beautifully. It's like there, there's something of uh, like a large imposing structure that just like, to me, it's like subconsciously, you know, 
it will outlast you. It's been there before you and it'll be there after you likely. And also there's something about abandoned structures as well that are getting overgrown or are somewhat dilapidated that they kind of have a stink of death on them that you don't want to like, I don't know if you guys have ever gotten curious and gone in an abandoned building or anything, but it, there's just this feeling that you shouldn't have because it's just a building, but it's just kind of getting reclaimed or it's busted up in some ways. But there's, there's just this, this thing where you think the death is going to rub off on you and you're like, uh, you know, anything could happen here. You know, the rules are kind of off. There's no, there's no maintenance here. Something could happen. So I don't know, maybe it's a little mixture of that. I also think, um, to what you're both saying, part of it is is that the jockey has such a time scale attached to it, and that time scale is so alien to our experience. And when you're in an old house like that, or when you're in a ruin, as Jamie was mentioning, you're seeing something that predates you so much that you become aware of the fact that you're not going to be there forever. And similar to the to the way in which the um, the jockey and the derelict kind of ruins the illusion of earth for the crew the nostromo where they kind of feel safe right this like these things ruin our illusions of immortality because it's not like we walk around all, all day thinking oh i'm immortal we we don't but we do walk around all day usually trying to not be consciously thinking about our death like and the death of the people we love that's something that you know is kind of hard to think about um and so when I was at the Grand Canyon, I was uh, quite a bit younger. I was probably 11 or 12, and it was actually the last trip. My grandmother uh, used to travel everywhere with us. She was she went on like all the trips, and this was the last one that I had with her. She had cancer at the time and didn't know it yet. Um, but it was a, a very, very special trip, very important place. And I remember, even though I was only probably 11, being so struck by the fact that when you look at the Grand Canyon, you can see where it came from. And where it came from is hundreds of feet below your your you know vantage point so you like you look out at this expanse like jamie was saying that looks like for all the world like some foreign planet and you think like how could this have been formed and then you look down and you see like the colorado river down there and it's like this little this little pinpoint that has eroded over literal eons this incredible formation and what is even more stunning about that is when you're in that part of the world and you're in Red Rocks and Sedona and the Grand Canyon, et cetera, you can see the layers of sediment over time. And that gives you an actual like countable time scale. And you can see like geologic events like the that decimated the dinosaurs, for example. You can like see the line where that happened. And um, I think part of why the Grand Canyon and other things like that are so haunting is because we become aware of how how brief our experience is. And with the derelict and with the jockey, similarly, I think there's this amazing sense when they can't tell how old it is, right? Like that's that's, an, that's a conversation that they're having where they're talking like it looks like it's petrified, it's fossilized, right? Like that that's a fucking scary concept because not only are you in outer space finding an alien creature, but you're finding like the fossilized remains of one that was already space traveling apparently, you know, eons ago. And like, what else, what else can be out there? And like, how small are we? Like for some people like Kane, you know, he only lasts basically, you know, until they get back to the ship and then a few hours later than that. But I mean, everybody other than Ripley dies on that ship that they go back to. And, uh, and that's a really scary thing to, to think about. And I, I guess one of the things that I want to say uh, in terms of other media that the jockey has appeared in, some of them have tried to tackle this question of timescale. One of them that did it, I think, in a way that was actually really interesting is a book called, it's a, well, it was a miniseries 
that was later put out as a trade paperback called uh, Aliens Apocalypse in the late 90s. And in Aliens Apocalypse, you have a this gigantic jockey who looks very, you know, alien. He, he's he's like this malformed beast, right? He's huge, who has been uh, consciously in a he he has been willfully in a comatose state for three billion years or some some amount of billion years. The reason for that is he was waiting for the alien threat to die off because he, he figured three billion years is like as far as they would make it evolutionarily and then they would be dead and then like he could reawaken and get things restarted again for you know whatever their mission was but uh of course upon awakening he gets impregnated by, by a face hugger and ends up giving birth to this very cool very huge alien and um so like th- that that idea shows up in the comics as well but it also shows up in very different ways in the comics and for a lot of people when the prequels came out the thing that they were fixated on was that their vision of the jockey was very much from the Verheiden era comics that came out in the late eighties, where we not only meet a member of that species, but we like get to know him. He helps the colonial Marines out shooting aliens with his laser cannons. Uh, he was actually a friend, like a friend of the space jockey that was in the derelict in alien. So he's like emotional about like his lost friend. And it's like, and he hovers, he has like this like suit that allows him to float around. And his face is the helmeted face, at least if, if we're taking the engineers as canon, which we have to, uh, and which I'm okay doing like, instead of being a helmet, he has a helmet, like a big globe, like uh, like fucking Mysterio around his head, but his head is this like elephantine kind of walrus thing. And, um, I think part of why people get so attached to that version of the, of the jockey, which I st- I still think is is honestly really really funny, uh, is because a lot of people that was like one of their first experiences with Alien outside of the movies. You know, I I was a little bit too young to have read those when they came out, but when I was getting into Alien in the '90s, like I had easy access to all those comics, and like that was really the bedrock of my personal expanded universe. So like I started thinking of the jockey as that as like this. This kind of friendly, well, actually, there are evil ones or you know, dangerous ones as well. The one that they get to be friends with is is a nice jockey. But like, you know, basically that they're they're floating people that can telepathically communicate and shoot lasers. And it's very much sort of, you know, Star Wars, right? Uh, neither good nor bad, but something like Star Wars. So when we found out in Prometheus that that creature that we had seen was this humanoid giant or potentially was we don't know for a fact that was like a big cognitive dissonant moment for me where i was like (laughs) like what did i just see and and that was everybody we all had the same feeling of like are we okay with it if that was his helmet like is that it it was him all along and like they're actually these planet seeders who are doing like genetic experimentation and it felt like it came out of nowhere for me but you go back to the late 90s and you look at, for example, the director's cut commentary that Ridley did in 1999, and he's already talking about how that creature in the chair was part of a sentient race of colonizers who like went around and terraformed basically and created new worlds. Uh, and so that was a concept that then he he was pushing through for decades after that too, trying to get this movie made. Well, I guess for about a decade and a half after that, trying to get this movie made. So that was his vision from from the beginning. And of course, it was left open-ended because O'Bannon kept it very, very, very mysterious in his first draft of the script. It was just this creature that had given birth to a monster and it was dead. And that was that was all they knew. And that was really all of the detail that was provided. 
which is brilliant because then we all had decades to think like, what the fuck was going on with that thing in the chair? What really was that? And then we got the definitive answer in the prequels. If if you're talking about in terms of canon, it is like the canonically definitive answer that if that jockey itself wasn't necessarily an engineer, that we had engineers who had modeled themselves perhaps, perhaps after the jockey or that they were at least related in some way, and that it was speaking to that lineage. Of course, the engineers that we get in Prometheus and Covenant especially are significantly smaller. They you know, are they have their own things. They're wearing a suit, et cetera. Um, so who knows? There, there's still room for interpretation, but I think it seems pretty clear to me that Ridley is telling us that that's what was going on. So I, I guess as we kind of close, come closer to the end here, I want to get your thoughts on that on finding out that maybe there was an answer and how do the engineers kind of sit with you all? Uh, loaded question, Patrick. Loaded diaper. <laughs> I got one upstairs. Um, anyway, there's just so much of what I, in my own brain, I try to come back to when I think of the space jockey, especially after what Ridley had in his own mind and his idea of what it was and and what that race was and what they were doing, seeding planets and um, terraforming and and all of that sounds just like out of this world and, and really intriguing. And so I, for one, like did really enjoy Prometheus. And I know I've talked and have, talked on that in several episodes that that we've had um and i i i guess i don't it's not that i don't um fully think like oh the engineers yes that space jockey is an engineer in that cockpit i i really like to keep or hold on to as much mystery um, that I can about the space jockey because I I just love just for my own love of the of the movie and the, just the art and the story <laughs> and everything about it I, I just like to think like what if what if it's not an engineer in that what if it is maybe still a cockpit um or a chair that helped drive the derelict but what if it isn't an engineer that that question to me now that ridley has shown us the engineers which i also find very cool and awesome and would love to see more of just what he has built in his own mind around that whole side of the story um is really cool but it, as you see in covenant we get like this other sort of race or maybe <clears throat> a d- different uh like faction or or i don't know what you want to call it society of these engineers right and i know in one episode we had talked on like maybe the engineers that shaw and them find on that planet are more like like military militaristic uh version of those engineers like maybe that's their job is they go to these planets and they and they um they experiment on these bioweapons and then they're you know doing whatever they're doing or maybe they're like a rebel group of engineers something like that which is just 
fucking cool, right? Like it's it's wild to think of like all these d- d- just how many routes you can take their storyline and maybe what they've become after all these years, right? Um but so with that, I I just yeah, I just have to I have to hold on to this some of this mystery that was just first presented in that very first film because it's just so for one like nostalgic for two it's like my own idea of like what the universe is and like what is actually out there and what could that be i just love holding on to um that and i also just think it's okay too like I don't think we have to be disappointed. Say if you didn't it really enjoy what Ridley was going for and, and showing us that the the space jockey was maybe an engineer in um, a spacesuit sitting in that chair driving that thing. Um, I th- I think it's okay to think that it's still that that isn't what it is. Maybe you know he. It's not like at the end of Covenant or at the end of Prometheus that ship crash lands and that's LV four twenty six, right? That could totally be maybe a different race of engineers, um, another rebel crew that landed there. I think in uh, maybe one of the first episodes I I came on, I I know I really um I I, I, t- I just touched on like maybe that ship has been there for so long that those just grasping on some of the ideas that were presented in Prometheus, like maybe those eggs were vials. Maybe it's been on that planet crash land for so long that whatever ruptured like in the room when it starts changing, like maybe those vials had sat there for so long that they turned into the oval morph, like the egg in sort of a, in a way, right? Like became, part of like a living being on the ship sort of a thing, which I know is super way out there and probably isn't it. Right. But I, I just love to think about um, that and, and um, just the, yeah, the horror and the mystery around that. Um, yeah. Well, I agree with almost everything you said. <laughs> <laughs> Tilly went Thanks, all man. crazy with this egg theory. I'm Ro- very offended. Erroneous. No, but just, no, just, <laughs> no, but the fact that like, yeah, to me, for my experience of, yeah, watching the movies and particularly the first one, Alien is a singular experience and I'm not thinking about the engineers when I watch it. And if I were to, it would kind of, uh, you know, I don't want to be dramatic. It would ruin it. It would, it, it would it makes everything a little less. Yeah. It's to me, it's far from my mind. And I, and I do enjoy Prometheus on, on its own merits and in many moments and, and, and like aspects of the movie, but they're, they're oddly separate to me, even though they're supposed to be so kind of linked, but, um, uh, but yeah, I like the engineers on their own and I like the space jockey on its own and that's how I consume it. But it, to me, if, if you know it's nice it's like a buffet you know if someone else likes to watch alien and they look at the space jockey and they picture like he's in there he's really in there uh that's awesome but yeah that's that's about it i guess like yeah you you said it perry everything you said okay so i will take my gloves off i don't give a shit um yeah. i i think that uh, you better not <laughs> you fucking uh, fucked I, it up. I, I think that prometheus 
as much as I do love the engineers for what they are, I think they're terrifying. I don't know what I'm looking at when I see them. I don't really know where they came from um, or what they want. I mean, aside from some stupid dialogue, maybe saying what they want. Um, <laughs> if that's what Ridley Scott was intending to be in the space jockey, it completely destroys all mystery of what that space jockey is. And it's for me, the moment where Ridley Scott jumped the shark where mystery is what pulled us into alien mystery and the mystery box is what made alien so special it's what made alien so ominous and terrifying and it made it 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 it, it becomes the oblivion the whole ship is the oblivion the planet is the oblivion it's terrifying and then and he really fought Scott for comes the mystery along. then what and he fought for that mystery like he did in the original film absolutely and then he decides to come back to the alien IP and say, oh, no, 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 let's do this. And I, I'm the guy who made it. So it is what I say it is. I mean, that's almost a verbatim quote from him. And I think that idea really, really, really um, undermines the beauty of the first film. Now, to your point, Perry and Maj, I do think alien and prometheus are separate enough that whatever is in a in that space jockey could possibly and most definitely not be a um an engineer it could be something different and i think it probably is now ridley scott only says off screen that what's in this the jockey ship i mean this is kind of like pulling teeth a little bit because we all know like that's what it yeah. is like that's what ridley scott said off off camera or or they don't really say they don't make that link in the movie. Like we'll never, we'll probably never see a, a follow-up to, to covenant. I think all of that's over, but the atmospheres are so different in each film that you can still plausibly say there might be something else, or maybe it's an engineered that has been engineered to sit and live in that chair. So it is something different because if you look at Prometheus and you look at the, the, the size of, the the jockey chair and they don't they don't match up the arms are too long um they kind of extend the arms like if you see the uh the statues of the engineer their arms look way too long and if you you know you look at the engineer outside of the suit that suit that they're in it doesn't their arms aren't that long so why would their arms be that long in the suit their arms are that long in the suit because they have they're trying to match it up it doesn't really work it doesn't really like it's just not the same thing that's in that chair it just really isn't. And, but it, it's, it's, it's like a tale of two cities. It's, it's, there are two separate things going on here that were, that were kind of jammed into the same box. Oh no, this is the same thing. This is, mm -hmm. this is what is, it's not what it is. That's um, how I, I experience it. I just, I like pretend the other one doesn't exist when I watch well, And I pretend Prometheus doesn't exist. I mean, yes. even though there are things in Prometheus, I absolutely adore. We've been over this. I think that there's a master class of a film in there. I'm I, I, I'm not going to ever like, I, I'm done like defending my, what I don't love about Prometheus. Like those times are over. If, if opinions offend people, then you probably shouldn't be listening to podcasts. <laughs> Number one. Um, <laughs> but I, I think, the idea does undermine the space jockey. It just does. What is like, what is beautiful about 2001 a space odyssey is we don't really know what's happening. We don't know what we're looking at. And so our mind goes into these places um, where minds go and create something beautiful and terrifying and ominous. And Prometheus then steps in and says, Oh no, 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 no. 
you don't need to create anything in your mind. This is what it is. We don't need to be told what things are like. That's, that's what makes that movie good. I mean, that's why we didn't, that's why Han Solo was a mystery, right? Because we didn't know who he was. We didn't know where he came mm. from. And then solo then, Oh, he's this, <laughs> Oh, you're solo. That Like, I mean, that's kind of. It's an egre- what, a very egregious example. Yeah. Yeah. But it, yeah. And I don't, I think solo is more egregious for sure. Okay. Um, but I think it's the same idea. And yeah. I, I think in some ways, even though I can watch Prometheus again with the sound off because it's so beautiful and there's amazing things in it. Um, I can never, I can't even, even though it's the most gorgeous film that Ridley Scott has done since alien. Um, it's just simply stunning. Like it, Prometheus is as gorgeous as alien is. It just doesn't have any of the time that alien takes. Nothing breathes like it breathes in alien. None of the characters are as good. Blah, 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 blah. We've been all over that before, but I can't, put the same i can't put the i can't put the engineers and the space jockey in the same room i just can't do it before patrick maybe takes us home just one quick thing because you brought up 2001 and the whole idea of demystifying everything 2001 is a very big movie for me i'll try and go through this really quickly but i saw it um similarly not knowing much about it at all and it totally changed my brain loved it loved it loved it and i went through this cycle where i'd watch it I'd, I'd watch it once and then I'd have to watch it like two more times. And then I'd, I'd throw my hands up and say, okay, okay, okay. I can't watch this for a couple of years. And then I'd wait three to five years. And then I would end up watching it. However, many more times, three, four, five, six times. And recently I'd mentioned this to you guys back during, back in the summer that I'd picked up a book by Michael Benson called space odyssey. And this is a book that absolutely details every square inch of this movie from pre to post to conception to to the release to everything and now i feel like my knowledge is complete and this is a movie that exemplifies this whole thing about mystery and particularly in my experience which was i actively uh avoided learning anything about how it was done because i was like this is such a magic trick like it's just so perfect looking there are effects in it that yes still yeah look better than anything so I never wanted to know, but then the time came and I was like, I just, now I'm ready. I want to know. Um, cause I've been very immersed in, uh, like the technical side of filmmaking. Um, and, uh, so I, I read it and I learned everything. And then I was like, you know, I'm going to hang out and I'm just going to wait. I'm not going to watch it at home. They usually show it in some theater on film on 70 millimeter, like every other year or or even more frequently. So I was like, I'll, I'll wait for that screening. Then I got COVID uh, uh, last month and I'm in bed watching all these movies and I have this um, projector and I was watching them on my wall, like really big. And just like, I don't know, it was the middle of the day. And I just decided like, whatever, you know what? It's not going to be in a theater on projected on film, but I'm going to see what this experience is like alone in bed with COVID. So I, uh, I watched it and it was a very different experience and it, it, you know, like it's a real thing, demystifying everything. I was like, I couldn't watch it the same way there. Most of the, uh, there were granted the advantage of watching it with these big gaps in between their whole shots and things that I'd totally forgotten, which got to wow me again. And by the end, I, I was amazed and filled with, with that joy you get when you watch a great film. But uh, there were parts that I was like, wow, that 
used to blow my mind and now i know exactly how it was done and now it's kind of it has lost its power but these things evolve you know maybe i'll watch it again in a few years and it'll it'll amaze me in a different way again so i'm just like living with it but i had this uneasy feeling of like uh oh, the the thrill is gone and it's it, and uh to this point also of course detailed in the book is that the, 2001 is a movie of of uh mystery on top of mystery on top of mystery and that was all kubrick because everything is thought out if you read if you read the book it, most of it's explained and particularly in the making of the book the thought process behind everything in the movie there was there was a real thought behind everything there's nothing in it that they were like well this will just be weird and people will wonder what it means there's a meaning behind everything and kubrick was very um adamant about making it participatory and um and awe-inspiring and confounding and all that. So I, uh, I I went against Kubrick's wishes and I went behind the curtain and I partially regret it, but I'm also happy I did it. But it's uh, this is all to say, um, value the mystery. The mystery is is golden, and uh, and that's and that's the campaign I'm running on. So please vote for me in 2024. Mystery's golden. Mystery's golden. Thank you, Perry. Mystery is golden. Well, you know, as we come to a close here, I, I got to say, I, I've probably read most of the printed material that's ever been published about Alien. I've definitely watched all of the visual material that's been released related to it. And it still has mystery for me. The, the derelict sequence in particular still feels like a magic trick, even though I know exactly what the set looked like around it. I know exactly how many people were there. I know exactly how they shot it. It's 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 one of those amazing moments in film that can't lo- it just can't lose mm. its its mystery for me. me too. And I really think that I really think that the jockey is kind of the key to that. I think that I think that the jockey part of why we all love it so much and I really mean that everybody that I talk to singles that out as like their favorite thing in the movie. I'm not everybody, but many many people do. And if it's not their favorite, it's one of their favorite things in the movie. I think it's because it's that it's a key to the mystery at the heart of alien that keeps us coming back and talking about it for hundreds of hours of our lives on a podcast. And uh, in in terms of my personal feelings on the engineers, et cetera, I'm torn because I also do love the engineers and what they mean. And I think that that, that the prequels for me are just endlessly fascinating from a lore perspective. Uh, But I also very much am in the boat of everybody, especially Jamie, in that I, I, I don't like that it robs some mystery from the jockey. Which is why I don't call the jockey an engineer, and you know I haven't done it tonight once because for me they re- they really are separate things. What I learned the more I podcast about movies, and at this point it, it's it's been quite a lot of episodes, is that pe- what's so fascinating about films is the amount of people who come together to work on them and how poorly those people fucking communicate during the process of making the movie. So what ends up happening really does mean many things to many people, depending on how you're watching it, because it actually is many things. And the jockey to me is a great way to look at that. It's like a little totem to hold on to, to look at movies through because it really was for Ridley Scott, the engineers. It really was for Dan O'Bannon, a remnant from a distant past. It really was for Guyler and Hill, a symbol of the company's avarice. 
And it really is for all of us a symbol of aliens' eternal mystery. And that's why I think it's just this great symbol that will continue to mean things. And you know, I, I I've I've kind of poked fun a little bit at people who um were like emotionally distraught about the prequels. And, and I, I feel bad because like I, I similarly, I, I was upset for different reasons, especially when covenant came out, but a lot of people were really hung up on this idea of like, don't, don't like the engineer for me it is, is totally separate. Like don't make it the space jockey, et cetera. And, uh, and I, I understand that. Like I empathize with that a lot. And what I love is that by virtue of what really ultimately, let's be clear is sloppy continuity editing, we really don't have an answer for that yet because Ridley Scott, you know, Ridley Scott cut that final cut of the movie with the idea that of Prometheus, with the idea that the engineer that has a fucking helmet on and Prometheus is either the space jockey or one of them. And, uh, and yet it, as Jamie was mentioning, the proportions aren't right. The size isn't right. The framing is kind of different. The outfit looks a little bit, it's these things like don't quite line up. And so we're able to live with that idea of what if, and you know, Jamie and I saw in person one of those sarcophagi from Covenant when we were at the at the uh, at UCLA, and uh, and you know, neither Jamie nor I are particularly tall people physically, but we were like almost as tall as this fucking engineer statue was. And I was like, this that's clearly not the space jockey, right? But it probably was intended to be, or or it could be what Perry was talking about. It could be this wacko theory that I love, or it could be what Christian was talking about in our last episode with the idea that the Promethean force here isn't actually the engineers. It's something above the engineers. And so maybe that's what the jockey was at the end of the day. Maybe the engineers themselves were created in the image of something else, something larger and something more you know, germane than they were. And maybe that's what the mystery is. And what I love is that whether it's accidental or not, and it is accidental, I think, the prequels don't answer that question for us, even though they kind of look and act like they are. So I hope, for what it's worth, that that space jockey is always just the space jockey. I hope that that space jockey is always its own totemic link to the mystery of Alien. And I love the fact that we continue to have that because it's a very, very special part of our fandom. So with that, um, I want to give a special shout out as we close. Oh, Jamie's got something. I just want to uh, leave. Uh, I'll hand it off to you in a second. There's one mystery that remains intact from Alien, and I'm going to ask you guys what you think it is. There's one blaring mystery that no one has approached in any of the prequels that continue that I scratch my head and like, well, where did this come from? What do you think that is? Who sent the beacon? Where is the beacon? Mm. Where did they, who's sending out this beacon? Yes, the ship woke up and the company's saying, telling them to, you know, crew expendable or whatever, where's the fucking beacon? They didn't even find it in that ship. They were, because Kane got face hugged and they had to bring it back to the ship, whatever. That to me is scary. Where did that fucking beacon come from? Because why would the space, unless the space jockeys, sent out the beacon on a, on a channel for everyone saying, don't come here. This is dangerous. I guess that's possible, but no one explains that. Anyways. Well, I think, uh, I, I think the, the company is, is responsible for rerouting the ship to it. So it, it, it could be the company was placing it there for them to find, but that also doesn't really make sense. So, yeah. well, and the only time that they go over that is when they're trying to decipher what the message is. And, uh, Ripley's talking to Ash and he's like, well, do you want me to, and, and Ripley asks Ash, what has he discovered? And he just hasn't really discovered anything. And then Ripley takes a shot at it. And she says, well, it looks like a warning. 
Um, so maybe it's from the derelict itself sending out a message over some radio channel that they just pick up. But it's very, very strange that we never see where that beacon is coming from. So that, and that again, that's really terrifying to me. But with that said, that's a whole nother just uh, topic of discussion. I will hand it off to Patrick. You could do a beacon episode. I would love to do that. I uh, would that's too. also something interesting in the script too, to do mm. um, and I I'm saying unpack so much. Go ahead, Perry. Oh, and I was just going to say isolation touches on it, which is yeah. in a really cool way. Right. So just something to be said about that game, obviously being amazing, but um, just the beacon to your point, Jamie, I, I love that. I, I think um, that is a great piece that we can all hold on to because th- that is definitely something um, that has not been touched. Yeah. And, and I was going to bring up isolation too. That's a wonderful, another gateway into this and to the derelict sequence for people. So if you haven't played isolation yet in the near decades since it's come out and you listen to the alien saga podcast every other week, you, Jamie's raising his hand, <laughs> you better pick up a controller and go play it because it's the, it's the most, we're doing another playthrough as I speak. Uh, and it's just, it's uh, can just, we do another one when I get there? Cause I'll be there. For, I'll be with you for nine eight days yeah we've got to play last of us too so we, we, we got a okay, lot to okay. we got a lot to do but we, okay. we're going to be gaming but hang on but 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 before we go uh we have a bunch of new patrons again which is incredible and thank you to all of them uh i, I wanted to do a quick shout out i think on yes i did on our previous po episode give james a shout out who came on, on our shoulder of ryan uh show so james welcome again but even since james joined we have two more we got larry cornett and martin griffin uh, who are new sector four members. And again, sector four is at the $4 U.S. dollars level and you get access to everything. So it is like, that's just the price of admission to get tons of new stuff, including our first ever show uh, called, yo, we fucking hate it, which was great. Perry we had a blast on that one with us. We, we just shat all over the new Halloween ends movie, which so much was horrible. Fun. It was great. But, um, <laughs> We also talk about things we love in there, including sublime noise. We do, you know, film score shows and we do frame rates, including one that uh, I just edited and put up and I can't remember what, what in the hell that I just put that two days ago. What movie was that? I don't know. <laughs> oh my God. This was, I literally just edited this episode. Well, we're doing Wait, so much. Stop. Like we're in so many different things. I, I have the email. I have the email. We're this looking for right now, people. Oh, uh, no, uh, no, Jordan Peele. Nope. Oh, uh, yeah, duh, yeah. come on. Wow, okay, sorry. Uh, so <laughs> if you want to hear things that we don't yeah. remember recording, you know. Uh, but no, so, but seriously, thank you to everybody. You are directly bankrolling the movie that we are shooting in two weeks, which has blown my mind. Three weeks, about two and a half weeks. Uh, and so, you know, Madge is DP for that. Perry is a star of that, along with my wife, who's also a star of it. Uh, Jamie wrote it, of course, and we're co-directing it. I'm going to do the music for it. It's just, it's a family event uh, for real. And you helped people get in person to be able to make it. And you helped us with rentals for equipment. And you're going to see a a full-fledged PO movie, uh, which will be a short film, probably about 15 to 20 minutes tops, um, coming out that you are responsible for. You're all producers on it. And you will be thanked such in the credits. So thank you. Yes, thank you for listening, everyone. And thanks for the support. Yeah. To find out more information about Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please go to www.perfectorganism.com. If you would like to support the show, please go to 
www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.